I'm sure if Philip Paul Bliss could come into the church tonight or listen online, he would say, that's tremendous singing. You sang that really well. He's the author of that hymn, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. We're going to read tonight from Mark's Gospel. We're turning to chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 25, and we'll read through to verse 41. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. Let's hear the word of God. For those online, the words will come up on screen. But as we've said, we do encourage you to get a copy of the Bible and read it for yourself. And if you want a Bible, please contact us and we'll be happy to donate one to you free of charge. Mark chapter 15, verse 25. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by riled at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joses and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto them. And many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Now my text tonight is taken from Mark chapter 15 and in the verse 39. It says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now we're thinking tonight of the theme, the centurion's confession of Christ at the cross. And I put it to you, that it's surely remarkable that all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make reference to this particular confession and the circumstances that surround it. 
Listen to Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And over in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 44, 47, we read, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. Now, what I'm saying is this. When you combine these three witnesses together, you get a very clear picture of the personal conversion of the centurion and his powerful confession regarding the person of Christ. Now, I want you to think of the facts. They are clear. They are plain. They are straightforward. This man was suddenly converted and then he was moved to confess Christ in a way that exonerated Christ, in a way that brought glory and honor to his name. Think of these words, truly this man was the son of God. And I was thinking, surely out of the many hundreds of testimonies inside scripture and beyond scripture, we could say that this man's conversion this man's confession stands out as a highly significant conversion and confession. Remember, I don't believe that anyone really expected conversions to take place at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Nobody had that in their mind. But yet, when we read the scriptures, you've got the conversion of the thief on the cross. And you've got the conversion of this very man, whom the Bible doesn't name, just calls him the centurion. But he was the man who was overseeing the crucifixion. He was the man in charge. He was the man that led Christ and the soldiers to the cross at Calvary. And yet there, before the cross, this man was converted and he was moved to confess Christ before men. Now, a few thoughts for the next few minutes. I want you to think of a confession that was truthful. I want you to think of what the Roman centurion said. If you look at our text, Mark chapter um, 15, and in the um, verse um, 39, think of what he said. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, that's remarkable. Because when you add in what Luke said in Luke 23 and 47, he said, certainly, this was a righteous man. Now, what's he doing? He's confessing two things about Christ. One, he's a righteous man. And then he says, truly, this man, thinking of this righteous man, was the Son of God. You see, it was beyond all reasonable doubt. This man... The man in the middle tree, this bleeding figure whom is being crucified, he's a righteous man, and this man is none other than the Son of God. You see, the centurion, give, I believe, was given a clear revelation of the sinless, spotless righteousness of Christ, and that Christ was also the eternal Son of God. Here's a revelation 
A remarkable revelation of the true person of Christ. And it's revealed to him. He has taught this as he stands at the cross. Now this is wonderful. Because you know what? This, I believe, was a rebuttal against the wicked crowd. They have ridiculed his sonship. And if we were to read Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 to 43, one of the things that the crowd said against him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And of course, the enemies of Christ reviled him, focusing primarily on his eternal sonship. You see, the devil hates the eternal sonship of Christ. He knows who he is. Remember he said in one of his temptations in Matthew chapter 4, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. If thou be. It was an element of doubt. Are you sure you are who you are? You see, these people at the cross, they're mocking. they're, they're, They're deriding Christ. They're behaving in a scornful fashion. And here's the devil, I believe, at the back of the crowd, moving them as leaders and priests, in a final onslaught, as it were, still opposed to Christ, using the very same words, if thou be, for he said, I am the Son of God. But you know what? God had a man there, a man at the cross. And what did he witness to? He witnessed to the sinlessness of Christ. Truly, this was a righteous man. And he witnesses to his eternal sonship. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Isn't it wonderful that this man was suddenly converted? And this man superbly confesses Christ. He raised his voice. Wasn't easy. This is probably one of the hardest things this centurion ever did. And yet this centurion was used by the Lord. And his words are recorded in three of the Gospels. Maybe you live or work or are being educated in a place where Christ is being denied and he's held up to mockery and ridicule and scorn and, and his person and work is, 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 is denied. God is you there as a witness. And if you're converted to Christ, then part of your role in that wonderful position of being converted is to testify of him because God never leaves himself without a witness are you speaking up speaking out or are you a silent witness a a, a confession that was truthful I want you to think of something else this was a confession that I believe was very thoughtful I want you to think of the person who uttered it. If you look again at our text, it says, and when the centurion, all three of the gospels, Matthew and Luke, also mention the words, the centurion. He's not named. Now, who is the centurion? Well, he's a soldier in the Roman army. But he's not just any soldier. He's the actual man in charge of the soldiers at the crucifixion scene. Here's the man, I believe, who executed the crucifixion. Because the centurion, according to the Roman historian, Josephus, Flavius Josephus, he had a hundred men under him. He'd certainly no less than 80. He'd no more than 120. Roughly about a hundred men. So, so he's a, a military man. 
He's in a position of leadership. Here's a man who's used to giving orders. A man with power to inflict the most barbaric cruelty as carrying out a, a crucifixion. And if Flavius Josephus is right, there's 30,000 crucifixions took place during the Roman occupation of the land of Israel. This man, I have no doubt, would have proved himself in the battlefield. A man who could take charge of a situation. A man who could give commands. A man who could command the respect of men. A man who was responsible for the men under his charge. A man that was answerable, we believe, to Pontius Pilate, who was answerable to Julius Caesar. He had a very important position. But I want to tell you tonight, this man was a pagan. This man was a Roman centurion. He worshipped many gods. He was probably polytheistic, which... Rome believed in all the gods of the world, and if you worship all the gods of the world, you'll eventually be worshipping the right one. But this man was also a, a hardened sinner. He had been guilty of many sins. Think of gluttony, lust, theft, drunkenness, gambling. Didn't the soldiers gamble under the foot of the cross for the clothes of Christ? Been guilty of immorality. Certainly guilty of barbarity and cruelty. And here he is, the cross. Why is he there? He's given the job of crucifying Christ. And there the soldiers are satisfying the wickedness of their heart as they carry out their duties. Think of the person who uttered this word. Also think not only of his person, but think of his perniciousness. You see, the heart of this Roman centurion would not only have been pagan at its core, but it was perniciousness in its outworking. Because here you get a picture of the hardness of the human heart at Calvary. Someone has said, this is to do with a preacher, that all he needed for any individual to be converted was 15 minutes with any man or woman, and he had the power of persuasion to convince them to be converted. And when I thought of that, I, I thought, well, that man doesn't know what he's talking about because he doesn't know the hardness of the human heart. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Who can know it? And you see, salvation which is off the Lord, is more than just giving a person evidence. I can give you all the evidence you want. It's more than presenting a winsome four-point or five-point outline or plan. It's more than even standing at the cross, witnessing the actual crucifixion scene. Could you picture that? Being moved to tears. Emotionally distraught. You see, I want to say tonight, I don't believe it was the actual sight of Christ on the cross, an actual grasp of his physical sufferings that convinced him to be converted or convinced him to confess Christ. Remember, there was two others crucified that day, two thieves. They endured the same kind of death by crucifixion. He said nothing about them. He didn't say, truly, these two men were thieves and they deserved to die nothing about them. Their suffering had no heart or impact on his heart and mind. 
See, it wasn't the actual scene of the cross that moved him to be converted or confess Christ. You, you think of the film, The Passion of Christ. I've never saw it, but I've known people who come out of the cinema and they were weeping and they were very emotional. And, you know, at the sight of suffering, we all get emotional, whether it's a loved one in hospital with a terminal illness or, or whether it's a tragic accident of a child, a young person, or a man or woman. And we, we all can become emotional. This preacher too. But I want to tell you, tears and emotions doesn't change the heart. The heart is the same. Even though we're emotionally affected, the, the heart is so hard. Even at the cross, we're incapable of saving ourselves and turning from our own sin to the Savior. We have right to ask, well, what moved him to confess Christ? What moved him to be converted? And the answer is found in John 3 and 7. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. In other words, the Spirit of God was at work. And the Spirit of God would have used means, as he does use means, to speak to this man and awaken his conscience and teach him who Christ is. You see, it was revealed to him who Christ is. Truly a righteous man, the Son of God. The Apostle Paul describes the human heart in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. The human heart is so hard. Now think of this. How many were around the cross? There was at least a hundred soldiers, plus this man in charge. And there was women there. And there was passers-by, and the religious leaders, and the priests. And yet we only read of two people, the thief on the cross, and the Roman centurion who were converted and confessed Christ. You see, the human heart is so hard that even though they, they, they get a sight of the passion of Christ and his crucifixion, that they reject him. They, they crucify the sinless, spotless Savior on the tree. And I want to say tonight, the human heart can be presented with plenty of evidence Here's who Christ is. Here's what he's like. Here's what he's done. And still remain hard. Still remain unconvinced. Still remain unregenerate. You see, it's not like of evidence. The reality is that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And the real reason for not repenting and getting ready with God is they don't want to give up their sin. They have a love for their sin. And only the Spirit of God can awaken them to their sin, to recognize it, to realize it, and repent of it. Now, is that true of you? Would you love to be saved tonight? Would you love to know Christ? Would you love to be converted and make this confession? Truly, this man was the Son of God. May you experience the new birth. May your heart be warmed, even like John Wesley, as he sat in uh, Aldersgate Street in London and heard the uh, word of God being preached. May your heart be warmed tonight by the Spirit. This testimonial was not only truthful, but it's thoughtful. It was thirdly a confession 
that was testimonial. You see, this centurion was made to focus on the manner of Christ's death. 30,000 crucifixions in Jerusalem. But this one was unique. This one was different. This one was full of details that he could not explain or fully disclose. Think of the testimony of the midday darkness. If you turn over there to um, Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, look with me at verse 45, and this is what it says. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Isn't that what Mark has already told us? He told us there, and it was the third hour that they crucified him. Verse 33 of Mark 15, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. See, this darkness was peculiar. There was the extinguishing of the sun. The darkness overpowered the light. Why? Because Christ was enduring the wrath of man. But in those three hours from the sixth to the ninth, he was enduring the wrath of God. God the Father was making God the Son's soul an offering for sin. And in that darkness, there was the revelation of his identity, the sacrifice for sin. In that darkness, there's the revelation of his isolation. He was alone. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Six hours of redemptive drama. And Christ from the tree. And for three of those hours, as a peculiar darkness comes down, the soldiers all wonder what's happening. Not an eclipse for a few minutes. Three full hours. Not a nighttime darkness. This darkness came at midday. Darkness at midday. Six hours of redemptive drama. And at noon, Christ was crucified. And at 3 p.m., there was darkness until the ninth hour. Is it not a vivid picture of Calvary? Notice that it was over all the land. Matthew 27, verse 45. Not only Judea, but Jerusalem, the land of Israel. God was at work blocking out the sun's light. Why? So he could do his Wrath work upon Christ, making his soul an offering for sin. Not only peculiar darkness, but portrayed darkness. It reflected the dark sufferings of Christ. It was oppressive. It was gloomy. It was awful. Isaac Watts said, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when the incarnate maker dies for man, the creature's sin. There's a second testimony, the testimony of the torn veil. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. I'm not saying the Roman centurion was fully aware, but he come to be aware. This was a new way to God. The old way had been done away with. The Bible tells us, but this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And over there in Romans, or Hebrews chapter 10, and in the verse 19, we uh, read these particular words. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. 
Think also tonight of the testimony of the cries. Seven in total. The centurion and others heard them. Unusual evidence. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. The dying thief and his conversion. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He cried out, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Luke 23, 43. And he heard, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How he took care of his mother. Son, behold thy mother, speaking to John. And he said, woman, behold thy son. John 19, 20. He never called her mother. There's no record of that in the Bible. He always called her woman. Think of the words, fourthly, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark 15 and 34 that we have here. I thirst, the fifth cry, John 19, 28. It is finished, the sixth cry. And how did he do it? If you look at our text, it tells us there in um, Mark chapter 15. Um, and the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out. And what did he cry? He cried out, it is finished. If you look at verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. You see, here's the point. It was the voice of a trumpet. It was very unusual for somebody who was being crucified. And then seventhly, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46. The centurion had listened to the mocking cries. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Maybe he thought, well, well, who are they? How were they saved? What is this being saved all about? The thief on the cross, remember me, and given the assurance today shall they be with me in paradise. There's also the testimony of the title. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews in three languages. The testimony of Christ's power. On the cross he had unusual strength. He had power right up until the end. He was in complete control. There, there was nothing glaring here. It seemed as if Christ had a triumphant, powerful spirit. Power of victory, a loud cry, not a defeated cry. Not a demonstration of a broken man with a loud voice. Strong, supreme, as a king, as a lord who dies in power and victory. Strength to the end. See, remember he was defeating sin. Remember he's defeating Satan by his cross work. And remember what we read in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, and in the verse 15, it says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. What about the testimony of the earthquake? Matthew 27, verse 51b, the testimony of the open graves. See, this Roman centurion, he saw it all. He witnessed it. It was unique. What a testimony. You see, let me make it clear. The life of Christ was not taken from him. It was not forced. Christ, as someone has alleged there just recently in the Daily Mail, Christ died from fatal bleeding after a dislocation of his shoulder carrying the cross. That was from a, a Roman Catholic doctor who was turned priest, uh, Patrick uh, Pulsino. But it's as if there's no mystery about that. But let me tell you, Christ died willingly, voluntarily, deliberately. He was in control. He chose the precise time. It was an act of his own sovereign will. When he yielded up the ghost, it was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. 
It was the outworking of the eternal power of God to save his people by Christ's once and for all sacrifice for sin. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes are we healed. This man had seen many heroic deaths, but he'd never seen a death like this. This man was not fighting to live, struggling for last breath on the cross. This man was sacrificing himself to die. He was the master of death. He's in control of the situation. And do you know when it happened? If you look back at our scripture, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Let me just point out something here. He died at the time of the evening sacrifice, between 3 p.m. and 4 p.m. Why wait to then? Because that's the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember, this was Passover. The Paschal lamb would have been put to death by the priest in the temple. And at the same time, the Paschal Lamb has been put to death. Christ, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He voluntarily, willingly, deliberately chose to die on behalf of his people. He had power to take his life. He had power uh, given to him by the Father. No man took it from him. You see, this confessional was testimonial. And lastly, this testimony was transformable. This man needed to be saved. He's a pagan with a hard heart. And the wonderful thing is, this man come to realize the Son of God, as a righteous man, gave his life for sinners, shed his blood to make a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. And I want to say tonight, that's the only ground in which you can be saved. The ground of the personal work of Christ. Christ shedding his blood. Christ satisfying the Father. Christ appeasing the wrath of God. Christ in a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And how many focus on the cross, focus on Calvary, even focus on Christ. And they talk about his death, but, but they never get to the heart of substitution. He took my place and died for me. They never get to the heart that this man was a surety. He was paying the debt that we couldn't pay to the broken law. For we had broken the law. We're all sinners. This man was offering himself as a sacrifice. Once and for all for sin. This man was a sin bearer. Who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. The one who died to just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. You see many focus in Christ and they forget. He's dying as a saviour. That's why he was born. That's why he came into the world. He, he, he says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Lost sinners with pagan ideas and hard hearts and living without God and living in rebellion. Can I say tonight as we finish, if you ever want to be in heaven, and if I said to the children, put your hand up if you want to go to heaven, I'm sure every child would put their hand up. If I said to the young people, well, I'm sure most of them would put their hand up. Yes, we want to be assured of heaven. We want to be guaranteed of going there. But let me tell you this, and I say it in love. You'll never, ever be in heaven apart from Christ. Apart from trusting in him. 
apart from realizing your need of him, apart from reception of him, do you know him? Have you received him? Is he your Lord? Remember the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them give a power to become the sons of God. If you see his death on the cross, as nothing else but an expression of God's love, then you've missed the point. It does demonstrate and commends God's love. But remember it says, but God commended his love toward us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means his death was an payment for sin. The Son of God gave his life Shed his blood, made a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. And on the basis of that atoning sacrifice, we can be gloriously brought to know Christ. And we can be converted and make this confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. This confession was transformable. Do you see tonight how truthful it was? Do you see how thought-provoking it actually is? Who uttered it? And what his heart was like. Can you see and hear the testimony of this unusual detail about this significant death? Do you realize it's transformable? So I asked you this question. Have you ever made this confession? Truly this man is the son of God. You'll only do it if you have a new heart and convert it. But I commend this the conversion and confession of the centurion to you. And I pray the Lord will give us grace and understanding as we think of these things.